when welcome to the BFD podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I apologize for our delay in getting another episode out. We've had quite a lot going on. I had a medical procedure, so I was unable to record, and Darcy has had some delays because of some stuff that's going on in her life, so I'm going to talk about a couple of cases today on my own. Today I'm going to talk about an interesting case that I found and discovered quite a while ago, and it was actually a San Diego case, which is what piqued my interest. And I'm going to talk about the murder of Kara Knott. So Kara Evelyn Knott was born February 11th, 1966 in Ventura, California. She was a junior at San Diego State University and was studying to become a teacher Evidently, everybody that knew her loved her, and she was one of those girls who had a very, very pretty smile that lit up the room. I'm sure it's kind of the same thing that you hear on every episode of Dateline. And during the holidays in 1986, she was visiting her boyfriend, who had been sick with the flu, and she drove to Escondido, where he was recovering at home, to take care of him. She spent the day there sort of nursing him, And around 8 p.m. that night, she called her father to say that she was heading home. But when she didn't arrive home after a couple of hours, he became concerned and felt like something was wrong. At that point, he went to go look for her in his car, and other family members spent the night looking for her. It wasn't until daylight when they found her abandoned car near the main highway. Evidently, the driver's side window of her car was open and the keys were still in the ignition. And more concerning to them was the fact that her purse was still inside of the car and it didn't seem like there was anything missing. It didn't take long for the police then to find Kara's lifeless body about 70 feet from the car. They did an autopsy on her body and found that the cause of death was strangulation. Interestingly enough, there were no signs of sexual assault, but she did have several bruises and ligature marks on her body. They searched her car at that point and found a receipt for a nearby gas station that was about 15 miles away from where her body was found. They went to the gas station and looked around and concluded that Kara had stopped there to fill up her car with gas on her way back home. There was also a bridge near where her body was found and there were some skid marks on the road. The skid marks were photographed and measured and based on the appearance between them, it looked like they came from a large vehicle. Kara's boyfriend Wayne was the only person of interest at that point and usually it's the last person that sees them before they disappear that becomes that primary suspect but he had spent all night at home and his sister confirmed the story and his alibi. Police reached out to local news stations to raise awareness about Kara Knott's murder and in particular about roadside safety. This particular news station created a reenactment of what police thought was Kara's last moments alive and then they received their first lead after they aired this safety program. They received about 300 calls after the safety program aired, and out of these, 30 of the calls were from women saying they'd been stopped on the side of the road, spoken to, and detained by a specific patrolman in San Diego. They all said that this was a California Highway patrolman who told them to drive to the same area where Kara's body had been found. 
Most of them had refused this direction. Several of the callers said that the patrolmen sat in their passenger seat and asked them inappropriate sexual questions not related to vehicular safety. When they asked about who this officer was, they identified him as Craig Payer. This was a 36-year-old police veteran, and he was the same patrolman who had been in the reenactment produced by the news program. He was portrayed as a caring patrolman telling the public what to do to stay safe, which is even more frightening. When the police looked into Craig's whereabouts around the time of Kara's murder, they found that he had been working the night Kara was murdered. But his logbook showed that he was miles away from the area that Kara's body was found and that he had been giving somebody a ticket. When he was questioned, police noticed that he had scratches on his body, which never bodes well, right? And he had trauma on his left arm. When they asked him about it, he said he had injured himself on a fence. Likely story, right? A closer look at the logbook for Craig Payer showed erasure marks at the time that he said he'd been giving that ticket, which was coincidentally also the time that Kara had been murdered. And this was around 9.30 p.m. It looked like Craig wanted to make it look like he was doing something else at the time of the murder. And obviously, he was not giving a ticket. Craig denied any involvement and willingly turned over the uniform that he'd been wearing the night of the murder. It was sent to the forensic lab to be analyzed, and on the uniform, there was a very specific gold shoulder patch that they really analyzed because there had been a similar type of fabric on Kara's clothing when they found her. Investigators sent both the samples of the gold fiber on Craig's uniform and the gold fiber found on Kara to a forensic lab, and the analysis compared the color of the fibers by placing them in a solvent that separated the pigments out. They used a spectrometer, which measured how much light was absorbed and how much passes through the sample, and the pigments were then analyzed. The spectrometer, controlled by the software, yields a graph of the samples that had been tested, and in the case of the fiber from the patch and the fiber found on Kara's clothing, they found that it was an exact match. Similarly, purple fibers were found on Craig's uniform and on his boots, and these were fibers that were from Kara's sweatpants, and they were also, coincidentally, an exact match. They started looking through Craig's patrol car at that point and found a very small piece of yellow rope. The rope was sent to a forensic odontologist to be compared with the ligature marks that had been found around Kara's neck. The forensic odontologist measured the distance between the coils of the rope and the marks on Kara's neck. The distance was exactly the same, which was a very clear indicator to them that the rope had been used on Kara to strangle her. His shoes also highlighted something, and that was a drop of blood. But back at that time, back in 1980s, DNA testing was not done but they could figure out what the blood type was, and they found that it was type AB. This is the rarest blood type in the U.S. and was also Craig's blood type. 21 days then after Kara's body was found, Craig was charged with first-degree murder. He, of course, denied 
any involvement, which they always do, right? Uh, there was a lot of evidence, though, that proved he was the murderer. The skid marks found near the scene, which I touched on earlier, were a match to the vehicle he had been driving on the night of Kara's murder. Eventually, Craig was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison, where he still claims his innocence. As the years have passed, DNA technology has improved, and in 2004, when Craig was asked if he wanted the blood found on Kara's boot to be analyzed, he refused. He is eligible for parole, and he has had several parole hearings thus far. He has been denied up until this point each and every parole, but he is eligible again in 2027. In November of 2000, Kara's dad died of a heart attack only a few yards from where Kara was killed. He was tending to a garden that they planted for her in that spot. I find this case particularly interesting because she was driving on a prominent road and one that I drove on many, many times when I lived in San Diego. And she'd been going to her boyfriend's home in Escondido, which is the area that I lived in in San Diego, and driving back to her parents' home in El Cajon. So many women stepped forward to say that Craig Payer had also harassed them by, by pulling them off the road and trying to pick them up as dates. In this case, they believe that this situation was different from the rest because it escalated when Not threatened to report Craig for his inappropriate actions. They say he tried to grab her and she slashed and scratched at his face with her nails, so she definitely fought for her life, and that he in turn bludgeoned her with his flashlight and then strangled her to death with a rope. And when he was done with that, he threw her body over the edge of an abandoned bridge where she fell into the brush below. So this case is also very interesting because he was used by reporters at the KCSTTV who interviewed him during a ride-along segment about self-protection from female drivers. And it just seems so ironic to me that they would pick this guy who was actually a murderer to film that segment. And had it not been for the filming of that segment with him in it, many of these women likely would not have come forward to say that he had done the same thing to them. What's also interesting is that there were several trials for this case. The first one resulted in a hung jury, but they retried it almost immediately, and the testimony regarding a second suspect and a hearsay explanation from the defendant about the scratches were ruled inadmissible. In the second trial, Craig Payer was found guilty of murder, and this was the first conviction of murder by an on-duty CHP officer. August 4, 1988 was when Payer was sentenced to 25 years to life with the possibility of parole. When asked why he wouldn't provide a DNA sample to compare against the boots, he refused to answer. The parole board has thus far denied all of his requests for parole on the grounds of his lack of remorse for his crime as well as his refusal to explain why he is saying he's innocent, but yet won't let anyone help him prove it. Right after this crime and the trial, a wave of incidents was reported when female drivers alone refused to stop when ordered to do so by the police. And I don't think this is unusual. I would be scared to stop, too, if you heard a story like this. Payer is serving his life sentence at California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, California, which is considered a country club or a garden spot among California prisons. At the time of his second parole hearing in 2008, he was said to have a nearly unblemished prison record and worked as an electrician at the facility. 
for years. He made a $52 per month salary from the job. He also worked very briefly as an apprentice electrician after getting fired from CHP while on bail before the trial. His third wife, Karen, who he married 18 months before the murder, visited him regularly but divorced him in 2007. It's an interesting case, and I believe that there is a Kara Knott Memorial Garden, and her 1986 murder was a case that took San Diego region by storm and frightened women young and old, as well as horrified parents who wanted to believe that their daughters were safe in San Diego. This case still evokes a pretty visceral reaction from hundreds and thousands of San Diegans, and it was really shocking. One tangible manifestation of this tragedy, though, is the San Diego crime victim's Oak Garden, which is located near the site where Kara's body was dumped, just northeast of the intersection of Interstate 15 and Mercy Road. To reach the park, exit Interstate 15 at the Mercy Road Scripps Poway exit, go east and make a U-turn at Scripps Highland Drive, which is 300 yards from the freeway. Take the first right onto Caraway and proceed north to the park. The creative force behind the Oak Garden concept was Kara's grieving father, Sam Knott, who lobbied for the better part of a decade to have the area dedicated to his daughter. His work reached fruition in 1996 when the site was dedicated to the Kara Knott Memorial Oak Garden. It was rededicated in 1999 as the San Diego Crime Victims Memorial Garden, undoubtedly with the blessing of the Knott family. That same year, Sam Knott, her father, transplanted scores of oak saplings that the family had grown from acorns in their backyard. Since its dedication, the park has grown into an oasis where the lives of dozens of victims of crime and violent death are commemorated. It is the gathering point for periodic events in which family and friends of those who were remembered here gather and continue the process of recovery. It is also something of a destination for followers of paranormal phenomena. So they do recommend that if you come to visit this site, you bring something to help make it more colorful and beautiful, either a plant or a rock or some little trinket. The bridge is the starting point of a hiking trail known as the Rancho PQ Trans County Trail. And if you continue taking the trail, you will pass Ickers Grove and eventually end up at the PQ Waterfall. It's a full day trip if you want it to be. Hidden below, the, hidden below the 15 freeway is the smaller bridge. This is the bridge that Karanot was thrown off of after Craig Payer strangled her. The memorial garden is difficult to walk through, but it has a beautiful tribute to so many lives lost. So interesting stuff if you want to go check that out. The second case that I want to talk about today is the case of Jonathan Schmitz. And I watched a, a recent crime show that talked about this case and this is an interesting one because I actually remember it happening back when the Jenny Jones show was still on the air. Jonathan Smits lived an ordinary life. He was pretty much an average Joe who lived in Michigan and led a pretty quiet existence. March 6th, 1995, he was invited to appear on the Jenny Jones show. And this was one of the more popular talk shows back in the day. And Jonathan was told by the Jenny Jones show that he'd been invited there because someone had a secret crush on him that would be revealed. So he's expecting this beautiful woman to reveal herself, but is bewildered when his secret crush is actually revealed to be a gay acquaintance named Scott Amager. On screen, they pan to Smits, who appears amused and maybe a little flattered at this revelation. 
But when the camera stopped, he is actually seething with rage that ultimately leads him to murder Scott Amager. And this tragedy changed talk shows forever. This man was ultimately dubbed the Jenny Jones killer. If you believe Jonathan Schmitz, he went on to the Jenny Jones show, which was one of the most popular talk shows of the 90s, because he was told that a woman had a crush on him. And he really wanted to know who that was. He was super curious about it. He was invited to tape the episode at the Chicago area studios, March 6th, 1995. And when he arrived at the show, he saw a woman who he knew in the audience and thought maybe this was his secret admirer. And he walks up to her and kisses her, according to people who were there during that time. And then the show tells him, oh, no, 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 no. This is not your secret admirer. This is. And the admirer is Scott Amateur, a 32-year-old acquaintance of his. Amateur had been introduced to Smith's by a mutual friend named Donna Riley, and this woman was also at the taping. And evidently, Jonathan was stunned when he found out who his secret crush was. And he had agreed to do the show, but didn't really know what to do after that because he didn't know what his rights were. And he just sat there and went along with the kind of the spiel. The producers of the Jenny Jones show had a different story, though. They said that they had told Jonathan Smith that his crush could be either a man or a woman, which would leave it open to interpretation. The actual episode itself never was aired, but Smith actually tells Amager that he was definitely heterosexual and doesn't seem enraged or otherwise disturbed by this revelation on the show. And everyone thought it would be something that would kind of be laughed off in the future and maybe a tall tale that you could tell when you're drinking with your friends. But regardless of which of these series of events, the final reaction was tragic. About three days after the Jonathan Schmitz episode was taped uh, on the Jenny Jones show, he returned home from an evening out with his friends and found an anonymous note on his door. The contents of this note were never revealed, but evidently he was absolutely enraged when he read the note. This caused him to grab his shotgun and knock on Amador's door, and he pumped two rounds into this guy's chest, killing him instantly. He then left Amador's residence, contacted the police, and immediately confessed to the killing. So the trial that followed was an absolute media circus. Prosecutors claimed that Schmitz killed Amador in cold blood um, to hide the fact that the two were having an affair. And Amager's friend testified to the affair on the stand. What you're seeing, they say, is a 24-year-old man facing the studio audience and the camera in what many people consider to be an ambush. When talking about the case, this is what they said. They say he is visibly upset and people are laughing at him. And it's like a circus where the audience gives a thumbs up or, or thumbs down to everything that's going on. And you can actually see parts of this episode, particularly the scene where they reveal the crush, if you look online. And it doesn't really look like Schmitz is mad. But his lawyers argue that the show, its producers, and the people that were involved with this are actually the ones that are to blame for the tragedy. They claim that but for their failure to disclose Amager's intentions, he would still be alive. The defense also revealed that his father frequently made homophobic comments to Smiths, 
and Smits killed Amager out of gay panic that ensued. So for those of you who don't know what gay panic is, is that it is a defense that has often been used in trials. And I don't think it's used anymore in most places, but it's sort of a, I was so freaked out by this gay person hitting on me that it somehow justifies my actions against them, which is kind of a ridiculous defense, but it was allowed in many states back then. But in the end, the jury did convict Jonathan Schmitz of second-degree murder in 1996, and he was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison with the possibility of parole. But this conviction was overturned, and then he was retried and reconvicted of the same crime in 1999. So he was ultimately paroled in 2017 and has pretty much kept himself out of the public eye since then. But let's talk about the aftermath of this. He was convicted of second-degree murder, and then the Amager family sued the Jenny Jones show for the wrongful death of their son, Scott. And at the actual trial itself, Jenny Jones did get on the stand and testified that she didn't get permission from Smits to humiliate him on national television. And they also confirmed, which was interesting, that they didn't do a background check on Jonathan Smith, which I believe is pretty much normal course of business now, and that they didn't do background checks on any of their guests before bringing them on the air. And Scott Amager's attorney pointed that out, and Jones and her staff, if they had conducted this background check, they would have found that Smith's had past mental health and addiction issues that would have been revealed, and they probably wouldn't have had him on the show in the end of all of this, Scott Amager's family was awarded $30 million in a judgment against Jenny Jones and her show, but the judgment was actually overturned later in a two-to-one ruling. And this case has been featured on a lot of different specials up until now. It was on Netflix's Trial by Media, and it was also on an episode of the HLN series, How It Really Happened, and that's the one that I watched about this case, and it was super, super interesting because there's actual live footage of the trial for this with Jenny Jones talking about the case. And then it also, you can look up actual portions, if not the whole show, showing Scott Amador and Jonathan Schmidt in the show as it actually happened. And you can see their reactions and and make your own decision about whether Jonathan Schmidt was enraged during the episode or whether it was just a function of him going home and stewing over it and thinking about it. But let's talk a little bit about Jonathan Smith now. So three days after Scott Amager named Jonathan Smith as his crush during the taping of the Jenny Jones show, Schmitz had shot Scott twice in the chest, killing him, before calling 911 and confessing to it. When asked why he did it, Jonathan Schmitz said, because he played a very effing bad thing on me. He took me on Jenny Jones, quote unquote. The shooting and the sensational trial court handed Jonathan Schmitz 25 to 50 years in prison. And after that, his attorneys got him a new trial, but the difference was minimal and there was a similar sentence. Jonathan's attorneys didn't contest that their client shot Scott Amager, which is an interesting defense. They alleged that his crime constituted manslaughter due to Scott's alleged diminished mental capacity. The lawyers argued that Jonathan's manic depression and Graves' disease made him unaware of the consequences of his actions, and they further alleged that the show's producers ambushed him, aggravating his mental condition. Scott not only revealed that Jonathan was his crush, but also detailed various sexual fantasies that he had about Jonathan Smith's. 
Jonathan smiled and kind of laughed throughout the taping, but he did so to hide his embarrassment, he said. He feared that being perceived as gay by the outside world and his homophobic father would cause him significant harm. There was also that suggestive note that I talked about that was left at Smith's house, and evidently they say this pushed him over the edge, and at that point he then purchased the shotgun and killed his secret admirer, who was not so secret at that point. Prosecution had pushed for first-degree murder, but the jury didn't consider Jonathan's actions premeditated. Similarly, they also rejected the defense theory that Jonathan's actions amounted to manslaughter. The jury that found him guilty found him guilty of second-degree murder, and he said afterwards, I would like to say the word sorry. Will they accept my sorry? I found my sorrow. Please accept it today because tomorrow is tomorrow, which makes no sense. Whatever sentence I impose won't take away sorrow, the judge said as he handed Jonathan 25 to 50 years in prison. He secured his release on parole in 2017 after spending 22 years behind bars. Scott Amager's brother told the Associated Press that he hoped Jonathan was reformed after his time in prison. I wanted assurance that the parole board's decision was not based on just good behavior in prison. I'd like to know that he learned something, that he's a changed man is no longer homophobic and has gotten psychological care. This man also told people that he was displeased that Jonathan secured release from prison. Like any other person who's lost a family member to murder, it might be easier if he, Smiths, was old and gray. He's still got a lot to go, and my brother doesn't, but there's a side of it at least. Maybe some of my family members, we do feel that he was victimized in all of this, and so we can empathize with all of that. Jonathan Smiths has stayed pretty much private since his release. He turned 51 in July 2021. The Jenny Jones show actually launched in 1991 as, as a traditional talk show. They discussed, quote, serious matters, but low ratings prompted them to shift to sort of a tabloid kind of a thing with paternity tests, teenage delinquents, makeovers, strippers, feeding neighbors, and secret crushes. This improved the ratings and vindicated the decision to alter the show's content. However, Jenny Jones failed to consider the feelings of the show's participants when they did all of this. And the um, amateur family actually believed Jenny Jones was responsible for Scott's murder. Jeffrey Feiger represented the amateur family in a lawsuit against the Jenny Jones show and Warner Brothers. And she actually admitted that she humiliated Jonathan on national television without his permission and without considering his mental health issues. And as I mentioned earlier, there was a $30 million verdict, but the Michigan Court of Appeals overturned that award. And despite this, the suit sparked changes in the way talk shows screened guests and approached shows. In the 90s, shows that embraced ambush television dominated the ratings, as you can all remember, Jerry Springer, Maury Povich, and Jenny Jones with the art of sort of airing exploitative, humiliating content. And people didn't seem to think that the people who were featured on these shows were real people with real problems. Jenny Jones herself insisted that Scott's murder resulted from individual action rather than her show's format, that she claimed that Trash TV was responsible Saying the trash TV was responsible for something like that was saying the reason I'm getting fat is because that refrigerator out there said one statement. But television eventually won the court battle. The case then forced shows to change their methods of operation. They had to implement psychological profiling and really do background checks on their guests. Interesting case. Um, you would never think that someone would murder 
for something like that, but it, it is an interesting case nonetheless. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about the content that we provided today, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We do feature pictures from the episodes on our Instagram. It is at the BFD podcast. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stories. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real and always live your very best life. Bye.